hundred years ago, so in 1923, was a German philosopher and theologian named Rudolf Otto who wrote a book that would become very, very famous. The book was called The Idea of the Holy. And basically, in the book, he collected and documented people's description of what it was like for them when they thought they were encountering the divine. They thought they were encountering the otherworldly, the awe-inspiring. And the word he used for it was the numinous. The conclusion of his study in that book was that the numinous had a strange double effect on people, seemingly. At the same time, it made them scared, but it also attracted them. And that was the strangeness of it. He used a Latin phrase to call it the mysterium tremendum et fascinans, the awe-inspiring and fascinating mystery. Repels you, even as it draws you in. C.S. Lewis was one of the writers that was influenced by Otto. He wrote about it this way in his book, The Problem of Pain. Suppose you were told that there's a tiger in the next room. You would know that you're in danger and would probably feel fear. But if you were told there's a ghost in the next room and believed it, you would feel indeed what is often called fear, but of a different kind. It would not be based on the knowledge of danger, for no one is primarily afraid of what a ghost may do to him, but of the mere fact that it is a ghost. It is uncanny rather than dangerous, and the special kind of fear it excites may be called dread. With the uncanny, one has reached the fringes of the numinous. Now suppose that you were told simply, there's a mighty spirit in the next room, and you believed it. Your feelings would then be even less like the mere fear of danger, but the disturbance would be profound. You would feel wonder and a certain shrinking, a sense of inadequacy to cope with it. This feeling may be called awe, and the object which excites it, the numinous. Now, I don't know if any of that registers with you, but I think you can probably remember times in your life when you became conscious of a reality greater than yourself. Perhaps it was staring out at the ocean, the immense size of it. Perhaps looking up at the stars and and being struck with a, a sense of your unfathomable smallness in comparison. Many people report at the birth of a child, the mystery rendering them at once speechless and wanting to cry out in wonder. For many, it's a near-death experience. Renders them paralyzed by the awe of what almost happened to them and didn't. I can remember when I was 22 years old going hiking with a friend in Colorado We made a a series of really poor decisions on the side of a mountain, the kind where we kept realizing, well, we can't go back now, but forward looks more and more dangerous. We came out on the other side. My friend and I sat down. We didn't say anything to each other. 
we just were silent. And I was conscious, maybe for one of the first times in my life, that I was not alone. In our passage this morning, God comes to meet with his people in a way that was both terrifying and fascinating. They were both drawn and repelled. It was a scene that would be forever remembered by Israel as confirming both the grace of God and the terrifying and awesome majesty of the same. I think it's an important text for you and I as we think about worship. On the one hand, we're we're sometimes tempted to think that worship is beyond us. You know, you can be in the middle of a worship service and feel incredibly far from God. How, How do I worship God? How do I connect with God? On the other hand, sometimes familiarity with reading about God, talking about God, worshiping God can be something we start to take lightly. We can take it for granted as if it's an easy thing. I'm just headed for worship. It's what I do every Sunday. Got worship music playing on my app, on my phone. No big deal. Well, friends, Exodus 19 can help us because in it, God comes to teach his people about what it means to worship him. And that's the big idea of our text. If you want to write this down, God teaches his people about the nature of acceptable worship. God teaches his people about the nature of acceptable worship. And it's my prayer that as we study it, that worshiping God will become clearer and more awe-inspiring to us this morning. So we'll think about it in three points. Exodus 19, three points. Number one, responding to the grace of God. Responding to the grace of God. That's verses 1 through 8. These are all what is acceptable worship. It's number one, responding to the grace of God. Then we'll think secondly about preparing to meet with God. Preparing to meet with God. That's verses 9 through 15. And then third and finally, acceptable worship is worshiping in awe of God. Worshiping in awe of God. That'll be verses 16 through 25. Let me begin by reading verses 1 through 8, responding to the grace of God. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. 
All right, our text begins with a time marker. We're told that it's the third new moon after the people have come out of Egypt. So this is about two months later. And they find themselves in this wilderness and at the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. Uh, This is going to be the location that they're at for the remainder of the book of Exodus. So chapter 19 through chapter 40. If you want to break Exodus into two parts, this is the spot to do it. 1 to 18 is Egypt to Sinai, and 19 to 40 is at Sinai, right here. And it's worth remembering that this is what God had told Moses was going to happen back in chapter 3. Remember, Moses is just minding his business. He's he's tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. Uh, Shepherds have to go where there's water and food, and they travel great distances. Well, he, he finds himself right here on this mountain, And God told him that he was going to use him to to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And the sign of that would be they would worship God on this mountain. So we already know what this chapter is about. It's the title of our series, Redeemed for Worship. Here they are. They've been redeemed. Let's think about worship. Moses, you can see, he knows what's going on. The the people are encamped at the bottom. He heads straight up the mountain, doesn't even need to be told. And in verse 4 to 6, God speaks to him some of the most foundational words in the Bible about what it means to be in a relationship with God. I want you to notice three things here, three things about being in a relationship with God. Number one, it's a gracious relationship. Look at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is a one-sentence summary of the Exodus. The, The ten plagues are summarized there by what I did to the Egyptians. And then this beautiful image of what he was doing in delivering them. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's a matter of some scientific debate about how eagles teach their eaglets to fly, whether they actually push them out of the nest and then scoop them up and catch them under their wings. What's important here is that image of God coming to rescue his people, swooping in like an eagle, and that he views the point of that as bringing them to himself. One thinks of the moving words of Jesus as he looked over Jerusalem, said, how often I've longed to gather you under my wings as a mother hen. Okay, in the course of our study here in Exodus, there are going to be many times where we need to note the difference between the old covenant and the new. There are differences. But I want you to notice right here that in the old, just like in the new, God's grace precedes the relationship. Can you see that? When I was a a pagan 19-year-old, just minding my business, God had someone bring this message about what Jesus did on the cross to me. I, I don't know why it impacted me. I had never been interested in religion before. I started reading the Bible that, that this fellow student gave to me. I realized that I was, in fact, a sinner in need of forgiveness. I found myself believing the message. It became good news to me. And if I looked back, I'd have to describe it this way. God saved me. His grace came and saved me. That's all of our stories, isn't it? 
His grace preceded the relationship. It made possible the relationship. And very crucially, this comes before any obedience. Friends, how important is it that these words come before the Ten Commandments? That's where we'll be next week. How many people wrongly think that they have to obey God to enter into his grace somehow, rather than begin by receiving grace, knowing God, and then obeying him? Do, Do you think about your relationship with God as primarily founded on your obedience? Oh, friends, look and see, it's not. He rescued, brought them on eagle's wings, brought us on eagle's wings to himself. So grace is the beginning. It's a gracious relationship. Notice the second thing here. It's a covenant relationship. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. This word covenant that God uses here, it's a central word to understanding the whole Bible. That's why the Bible split into two parts. The first 39 books in the Old Testament and the, the next 27 books of the New Testament. That word testament is just an older English word for covenant. Uh, the Chinese Bible is much clearer here, right? I don't know why we need two words. It's just covenant. The old covenant, the new covenant. A covenant is a contract, but it's a sacred contract with God as the witness and stipulations given to both sides. So notice here, Israel's part is to obey his voice and keep his covenant. There can be a lot of examples here of of parallelism, of saying the same thing twice. So obey and keep his voice, his covenant, same idea. That's our part. God's part is then to take them as his treasured possession. The Hebrew word segula here, coupled with that phrase, for all the earth is mine, it's taken from the ancient Near Eastern idea of a king who technically owned everything in the kingdom, but could take to himself a segula, Uh, an object of his special delight, a treasured possession. And so that's what these people are. These people who have received his grace enter a covenant-bound relationship where they listen to him and they are the object of his special delight. Third, notice that it's a purposeful relationship. Verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Again, a couplet of repetition. To to line things up, we should probably say a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that Israel wouldn't have priests and mediators and special vocation between them and God. Moses was a mediator, and Aaron and his descendants would serve as priests. Priests in the tabernacle would offer sacrifices to cancel guilt and and bring the people near to God. But there's some sense here in which the whole nation is being viewed as priests, as those with special access to God and a special role of bringing others to God. So we, we saw last week the way in which Moses was a bridge 
between his father-in-law Jethro and God. He, he brought the two together. And I think we should pour that kind of an understanding into this verse and, and we should connect it back to the promises that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 where God said he was going to bless him so that he could be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. This is the same idea here. Now, we're not going to see that full picture in the Old Testament. We, we, we see it just hinted that here and there. So Joshua to Rahab and Solomon to the queen of Sheba and Jonah to the Ninevites. But in the New Testament, we see the full flowering of this picture, don't we? Where God's people are sent on a mission as a kingdom of priests to connect a lost world to God through Jesus Christ. That's why we talk so much about evangelism and missions here. It's why we pray for it so often. It's why we take so much of our money and resources and try to send it outside of Singapore. We're trying to live out the, the calling and the commission that God has for us. We, we saw that just in the scripture reading earlier in the service, didn't we? When, when Peter reaches for this very text in Exodus 19 to talk about us in the new covenant, he, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so all language from Exodus 19, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Okay, why? Well, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There is a special evangelistic purpose in the kind of good lives, holy lives, that you and I are supposed to be living. So, brothers and sisters, we've got to ask ourselves here, is my life, is your life marked out by holiness? I don't mean perfection. I, I mean a, a grace-fueled difference from the world around you. A different view of money and sexuality and marriage, how you spend your time, what you talk about. Are you and I living as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? So it's a gracious relationship, a covenant relationship, a purposeful relationship. These were God's words to the people. And interestingly there, if you, if you look, it, it was a proposal that Moses had to go down the mountain then and set before the people. Uh, if, if you want to find a, a biblical basis for an AGM, I think it's right here. I think that's a, somehow that's what they have because Moses gets the help of the elders and he's got to take the message to hundreds of thousands of people. And I, I don't know if they actually took a vote or not, but somehow what we read there is the consensus, the conclusion. The people say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, I don't think we should doubt their sincerity. Many here, knowing what is to come and the ways in which Israel is going to fail, uh, see them. I, think, I don't think we should see them as cocky here. I think this is sincere. In this moment, they make the right decision. They respond the right way. 
But friends, the the lesson for us is to realize that that if you and I are going to worship God, the first step is to respond to grace. Have you done that? It's an actual thing that you have to do. Does it happen by osmosis? Maybe you've grown up in this church. You've just been around the whole time. That, that, That doesn't mean that you have made a decision to believe and rely on the truth of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for sins. It doesn't mean that you've decided you're going to turn away from sin and leave living for yourself and you're going to actually lay hold of the promises of the gospel by faith and believe it. That, that, that's something that you actually have to do. Being in a church building doesn't make that automatically the case. So let me ask you again this morning. Have you responded to the grace of God? You don't have to pray a certain prayer. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to put up your hand. Although the decision that you make should be marked by baptism in obedience to Jesus. But understand that just like here, God has extended a gracious offer to you. You're going to have to respond in faith. That's where acceptable worship begins, responding to the grace of God. Let's keep going in our text and think secondly about preparing to meet with God. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, and the people may hear when I speak with you. And may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. The covenant offer has been extended and accepted. In some ways, we might expect God now to reveal his law. But before that, Moses is told that God's going to come and and meet with them. He's going to appear to them in what we call a a theophany, a revelation of God in in a visible, experienceable form. So God says there in verse 9, this this is necessary so that the people can be sure that what he's going to reveal to Moses going forward is actually from him. That's what's meant by that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. But before that theophany can take place, there's preparation that needs to be made. You can see that word consecrate there in verse 10. It means to set something apart as holy. And there's a a three-day preparation that needs to take place. So notice what it involves. Number one, washing clothes. There's laundry that must be done. 
They're told to take the symbolic action of washing their clothes. As often in the Bible, an outward cleansing pictures what should be an inward reality. That's what baptism is an image of. But I want to just stop and notice the size of the task here. I don't know who does the laundry in your house. There, There are eight humans living in my house, which means laundry never stops, and and we have a washing machine. I mean, I'm assuming that they, they can use the underwater aquifer that God opened when Moses struck the rock in chapter 17. This would have been an exhausting chore for three days, long queues, and an opportunity to ponder what's about to happen. God's requirement of cleanliness. So first, washing clothes. Second, setting limits. Verse 12, they're to set up some sort of marking barrier, maybe a fence of stones from where the the land is flat to where it starts to slant up on the, the mountain. And they have to not just set the barrier, they have to enforce it. Did you notice that? Look look how serious this is. Don't go up the mountain, or even, verse 12, don't touch the edge of it. In fact, if someone does that, they're supposed to perform capital punishment. And they have to do it without touching the person. They have to uh, use stones or, or arrows. The person has become untouchable by their violation. Even an animal that wanders past the barrier has to be killed. So, so the first rule communicated the need for inward cleanness. The, the second here, the need for outward obedience. Just think about how difficult this would have been to communicate and enforce. I mean, the people are wandering all over the place. Just yesterday, they're, they're walking up on the mountain. Now this barrier of stones, don't, don't set foot over it or we've got to kill you. Again, this would have shaped their thinking about what's about to happen. Third thing they do to prepare, verse 15, is an abstinence from sex. It says, do not go near a woman. This is a form of fasting. The idea here is not that there's anything wrong or dirty about sexual intimacy. The Bible is clear that sex is a good gift from God, intended for the blessing of a relationship between a man and a woman in marriage, intended for the procreation of children. But we see this idea periodically in the Bible. So in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that a, that a husband and wife should come together regularly in sexual intimacy, except when they set a special time for prayer. In the same way that fasting from food for the purpose of prayer is a spiritual discipline that can focus our attention on God for a season. That's the idea here. So all of this went into a preparation for meeting with God. Now, to connect this with our new covenant reality means first realizing that our circumstances are different. Uh, We are not standing before Mount Sinai preparing for divine revelation. Uh, We're careful interpreters when we we don't draw a straight line from one person's context to another. But, beloved, the things God is communicating here are related to the nature of what's happening. A holy God is condescending 
to meet with a sinful people. That's with great gratitude that we read this text through the lens of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the washing should make us reflect on the, the cleansing from our sin that comes from Jesus' sacrifice. The, the limits make us think about how, how we who should be banished or should be killed because of our sin are instead brought near by his blood. So there are things that are different, but remember that God is the same. So you and I can take the words here, be ready for the day, as a word to us as well as to them. Beloved, like Israel, we should give time to preparing to meet with God. Sunday is called the Lord's Day for a reason. It was set aside for Him. It it should be that way in our minds and in our hearts. We should prepare for it. The reason we publish the, the text and the readings and the songs and the ministry guide that you can get on the website or it's sent out on the e-news on Friday is so that you can take them and, and prepare yourself. Fathers, maybe you could use this as, a, as a, a good way to start family devotions. Just read the text, get, get some thoughts and some questions, pray, and then sing one of the songs together as a family. We should think about Saturday as a a day in part to prepare for the Lord's day. We should avoid soul-numbing activities. Make sure that we get to bed early so that we can wake up and get here in time. Uh, Friends, you and I are in the habit oftentimes of taking this gathering too lightly. I think that's fair to say. You know, it's not as as if all of us are not late to church sometimes. All right? I I have six children. I know what it's like to be heading out the door and disaster strikes. Okay, but but that's that's the 1%, maybe the 10%. It's not the 90% or the 99%. I think for many of us, it's just a habit that we need to change. Well, we need, we need to not think to ourselves, do I miss anything significant in the first five to ten minutes of the service? That's not the right way to think about it. Change the way you think to this gathering is an opportunity to start our week, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, it's, it's our beginning of the week by remembering what God has done for us in Christ. We come to reflect back to him the radiance of his worth. We come to worship a holy God and hear from his word. Let's prepare to meet with God. There's nothing casual about our approach to him. It's not something you do in between answering WhatsApp messages, thinking about items on your social calendar. Friends, do you prepare to meet with God? Is that your understanding of what happens here? Maybe by way of application, you could just take the the prayer of Psalm 42.2 and make it yours. My soul thirsts for God, 
for the living God? When can I go and meet with God? Acceptable worship is responding to the grace of God, preparing to meet with God. Third and finally, it's worshiping in awe of God. Let's pick up the text in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, up to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. I think it's really difficult for us to imagine this scene, what it would have been like. Thunder and lightning, we can picture. A thick cloud, perhaps, we can picture. You can imagine the sound of a a very loud trumpet blast. We're told at that point that people were already trembling with fear. In Deuteronomy, Moses says that he was trembling in fear. But the earthquake shaking the mountain and the fire billowing up was an image that was seared in the consciousness of Israel from this point forward throughout their history. The fire there, it's almost as if the burning bush that Moses saw was just a miniature preview of what would lead the writer of the book of Hebrews to say our God is a consuming fire. In spite of all the preparation they had done, God has to immediately tell Moses to go back and warn the people not to come too close, not to to look up into the fire to try to see God. We we, we see what we talked about at the beginning, and it both repels and and draws them in 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 fascination, but they're in great danger. He warns the priests who, who will be set aside that they must consecrate themselves, or the repeated warning there is lest God break out against them. I really want us to think about this. Remember those words dripping with grace back in verses 4 to 6? He rescued them from Egypt. He he brought them to himself on eagle's wings. They've prepared themselves according to his instructions. But if at any point they come impertinently or improperly too close to him who is holy, he will strike them dead. He will break out against them. This is actually a repeated reality in Scripture. 
Later, when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer unauthorized fire before the Lord, it says that fire comes out from the Lord and consumes them. When Uzzah is leading the the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem and it totters and he reaches out his hand to steady it, to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling into the dirt, he's struck dead. The unholy cannot come into the presence, contact with the holy, where there's no questions that will be asked. I was talking with a friend this week. He said, oh, just in the Old Testament, God is so severe. Friends, read the book of Acts. When Ananias and Sapphira despise the offering of the Lord, you think when we scan a QR code and we offer our offering to God, do you think God takes that seriously? He struck them dead in Acts chapter 5. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. One commentator calls this the annihilating holiness of the divine appearing. So why is God doing this? What's the point here? Well, the point is not to scare them into making the right decision. Remember, they've already responded to his grace. So this is not a coerced obedience. But he does seem to be reminding them not to trifle with God, not to take him lightly. He seems to be telling them that their their status as his covenant people does not exempt them from punishment, that he's a God to be feared. So again, we have to ask ourselves this morning, do we stand in awe of God. The old hymns used to speak of God's presence as awful, meaning full of awe. I fear we've lost much of that. What is worship without awe? Now again, to bring this home to us who are at a different place, how do we apply this? The book of Hebrews, the writer answers that question for us. Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to the divine commentary on this and the application that he gives to you and I as we finish. Hebrews 12, 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, not to Mount Sinai, we've come to Mount Zion. And the crucial difference is that it is a joyful assembly because of the blood of Christ. 
and this new covenant that it establishes. Mount Sinai did not inaugurate a covenant that could finally solve our sin problem, but Mount Zion did. What Jesus did on Mount Zion at Jerusalem and the kill of Calvary outside the city when he died on that cross of wood and took on himself the wrath of God against sin so that if anybody will turn from their sins and trust in him, they will be finally and fully saved means that you and I, in addition to that awe that we should still have, can have joy, can have peace, can have assurance. It's so interesting to me that as Hebrews 12 concludes, the author doesn't argue, so let's sit back and relax. Now listen to what he says. See to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. If they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So again, the difference is not that they had awe. We don't need it. Rather, it's that worshiping God acceptably is now with reverence and awe and this thankfulness, this joyfulness. That's what acceptable worship is for us. Responding to the grace of God, preparing to meet with God, and now worshiping with awe and with joy because of what Christ has done. I was standing on our Yangtai on our balcony uh, last night with Abigail watching the, the thunderstorms that uh, so often roll through Singapore. I was thinking about the amazing power of God and the way it can quickly become commonplace to us. Most don't see a thunderstorm and think about God at all, usually. But it doesn't mean he isn't there. The awful mystery, the mysterium tremendum that people feel points to the fact that though we don't see him, God is there. If he were to pull back the veil for a moment, we would be undone. And yet, beloved, because of the work of Jesus Christ for all who would trust in him, that doesn't have to be just an awful reality for us. His appearing, his coming, can be something of great joy that we look forward to. So while we rejoice and revel in the grace of God that he's called us to be his covenant people, his treasured possession, this kingdom of priests and a holy nation, let's never lose our sense of awe or of joy. Let's pray together.